Welcome to the Friday Five, a series in which we cover five stories in health and science research over the previous week that you may have missed. There are plenty of controversies and ethical issues in science, and we get into many of them in our online magazine. But there are also lots of stories to be excited about, and this news roundup is focused on scientific work to give you a therapeutic dose of inspiration headed into the weekend. First up in the Friday Five, if a quick fix solution for mental health sounds like hot air, it probably is. But a new Stanford study caught my eye that focuses on air and mental health, specifically the benefits of a certain breathing practice. Of course, the ancients knew about the power of the breath, and in more recent years, there's been a good amount of research on meditation. But we don't have much research yet on the potential for certain approaches to controlled breathing. In this new study, Stanford scientists David Spiegel and Andrew Huberman, also a podcast extraordinaire, found that a type of breathing called cyclic sighing works to bring down anxiety and boost other measures of mental health. Cyclic sighing sounds pretty technical, but rest assured no user manual is required. You just breathe in through your nose until your lungs feel almost full, then add a shorter, deeper breath, bringing the lungs to their maximum capacity, and then sigh all of this air through the mouth and repeat for about five minutes. Dr. Spiegel, Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, explained to me why this would be helpful. Note that he talks about alveoli. These are the tiny air sacs where oxygen and carbon dioxide, or CO2, go back and forth between the lungs and blood as people breathe. Note that when we get stressed out, CO2 tends to build up in the blood, and these little alveoli sacs deflate. If, they, if the, you don't fully inhale fairly frequently, the walls of these delicate little alveoli start to stick to one another, and you lose surface area to transfer oxygen and CO2. And the slow exhale um, does trigger more parasympathetic activity. Parasympathetic activity being the restful part of the autonomic nervous system. In their study, published in Cell Reports, the Stanford scientists asked 111 healthy people to do breathwork every day. Half of them did the cyclic sighing for five minutes, and another group just concentrated on breathing in and out for the same amount of time without the second really deep inhale. Another group did mindfulness meditation, observing their breath without trying to change it for five minutes also. After doing this for a month, people in the controlled breathing groups showed more improvement on questionnaires asking about their anxiety levels and feelings of happiness and energy compared to the meditation group. And the greatest improvements were seen in the cyclic sighing group. Dr. Spiegel explains. The cyclic sighing group um, had about a twofold increase in overall um, positive affect by the end of the end of the month. Dr. Spiegel added that the sires had slower, more relaxed breathing on average, not just when they were doing the five-minute exercise, but all the time, including during sleep. Now, it's worth pausing to consider whether the practice of mindfulness meditation requires longer than five minutes to reap the benefits of that particular practice. But if you've only got five minutes for mental health on a busy day, cyclic sighing could pay dividends. And although it wasn't researched in this study, cyclic sighing might be even more beneficial if you're willing to try it for longer than five minutes and longer than one month. You know, you want a practice that is doable in people's busy lives. And so the fact that we found these positive responses with a relatively limited time commitment, I think is encouraging because it means if that's all you can do, you know, that's enough to make you feel better. And if you can do more good, you might feel even better than that. Doctors Spiegel and Huberman are now looking to use brain scans during cyclic sighing and will study this practice in people who have issues with anxiety or other mood disorders. There's also a great video from Dr. Huberman in which he shows exactly how to do cyclic sighing. I'll put the link in the show notes. 
Next up in the Friday Five, this podcast has featured research from scientists at Columbia University on the effects of reducing a person's food intake on a daily basis. It seemed to make people younger, at least according to one test of their biological age. Importantly, though, the diet in the Columbia research didn't come close to involving starvation in order to get those benefits. And another study that just came out is more evidence that you don't want to take it that far with fasting. This new study from scientists at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai might be the first to show that fasting can have a negative effect on immune cells and perhaps make it hard to fight off infections, like a bad cold or even cancer. The study looked at two groups of mice, one that fasted for 24 hours, and a control group that ate normally. The researchers found major differences in the two groups when it came to the number of monocytes in their blood. Monocytes are white blood cells that are produced in bone marrow, and then travel through the body to battle infections. After four hours, the fasting mice had 90% fewer monocytes in their blood than the ones that continued to eat. Where did the monocytes go? The Mount Sinai team showed that they had started hibernating back inside the bone marrow, which made them age differently, so they survived longer. When the mice did finally get to eat after 24 hours, the monocytes woke up and shot out of the bone marrow into the blood, ready for battle again, even more vigorously than usual. But this surge caused inflammation and actually made the mice more vulnerable to infection. I asked Philip Swirsky, lead author of the study and professor of medicine and cardiology at Mount Sinai, what this might mean for people's fasting regimens. He replied in an email, which I'll quote, The important thing to think about is balance. There's plenty of evidence that caloric restriction or short-term fasting have health benefits, but up to a point. Our study, Dr. Swirsky continued, involving a 24-hour fast, offers a word of caution to excessive fasting. Dr. Swirsky said another fascinating finding was that neurons in a particular part of the hypothalamus of the brain are what controls the monocytes going back into the bone marrow. Of course, this study was in mice, but still, next time you get a bad cold, it might be good to postpone your day-long fast until you're back on your feet. Next up, if you're interested in having children, you may have more luck conceiving if you're a man with a physically demanding job, or if your male has one, according to a recent paper by researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital. More people are running into issues with having kids these days, and a major reason is sperm just ain't what they used to be. One analysis found that between 2000 and 2017, the number and quality of sperm went down as much as 42%. The research team studied 377 men who were part of couples that had sought out services at a fertility center. Those men who had physically demanding jobs, specifically involving moving or lifting heavy objects, had 44% higher sperm count, and it was 46% more concentrated compared to the less virile paper pusher type of guys. The blue collar lifters also had higher testosterone levels, so high that they also had higher estrogen levels, which the researchers think get raised in the body to balance out super high testosterone. The Brigham and Women's Hospital researchers say there's a need for more studies looking into the mechanism that explains the link between physically demanding work and fertility. It's an important question, not just for reproducing. Men who have fertility issues are more likely to develop chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease. But if you're an office worker like me with no plans to become a UPS delivery man, you might consider scheduling some exercise snacks every 30 minutes throughout your day involving lifting some barbells or other things heavier than your double espresso. Next up in the Friday Five, in the future, if you need surgery for your heart, Doctors may use scans of your heart to create 3D-printed exact replicas of it, which can be used to test a range of fixes to find the perfect treatment for you. Scientists are making progress on 3D printing or growing replacement parts for when we break down, like a human body shop. 
such as a 3D printed ear that was attached to a person a couple months ago, and heart cells developed by Boston University researchers that can model treatments for heart attacks. And now, in a study published just a few days ago, MIT engineers announced they've learned how to 3D print hearts that react in ways very similar to real hearts. Coming up with a replica of a patient's heart is important because hearts differ a lot in size and shape, especially in people who have heart disease. Unlike Boston University's version, the MIT version wasn't made of human cells. Instead, they 3D printed an ink made of a material that's synthetic, but it's soft, flexible, and mimics the precise shape of an individual's heart. They use a device kind of like blood pressure cuffs that, when inflated and deflated, contracts and relaxes the robot heart, as if it was really pumping. The research team also printed an aorta, the main blood vessel taking blood from the heart to other parts of the body. And they were able to tighten this robo-aorta, just like what happens when people have a condition called aortic stenosis, in which they have a tighter aorta vessel that makes it harder for the heart to pump blood elsewhere. Currently, surgeons insert a valve to widen this vessel, but with a printed heart, they can experiment with where exactly to put the valve, and how big the valve should be for the best result. To make sure their machine hearts were good replicas, the MIT scientists compared them to the real hearts they were based on, and found the replicas pumped with the same blood pressure, and responded very similarly when aorta valves were inserted. And last up in the Friday Five, many people have heard of taking metformin for type 2 diabetes, and it's been linked to joint health and even living longer. But recent research has pointed to yet another potential benefit, preventing dementia. A new study from researchers in China offers some more evidence for this effect. The Chinese scientists looked at a database with over 62,000 people with diabetes who'd been put on metformin and at least one other drug to lower their glucose levels. But in this database, half the people had stopped filling their prescriptions for metformin at some point during the year after being prescribed for it, while they continued the other glucose-lowering drugs. Meanwhile, the other half had kept taking metformin. The researchers took steps to make sure people from both groups were similar in many ways, except for whether they kept taking metformin or had stopped. After an average of five years, the people who had continued with metformin were 28% less likely to get dementia. Scientists have generally thought that the higher risk of dementia for those who have diabetes is related to higher blood glucose levels in these people. What's so interesting about this finding is that it suggests there's something unique about metformin, maybe even independent of how it affects glucose levels, since that's the same effect of the other drugs these people were taking, to explain why it lowers the risk of dementia. It does occur to me that people who stopped taking metformin within that first year might be less conscientious on average, and so less likely to do other good things for brain health, like exercise and healthy eating. More research is needed to confirm just how unique metformin is compared to other diabetes drugs when it comes to lowering dementia risk. As always, you can find links to each study I've discussed this week in the show notes. And please check out the leaps.org magazine online where you can learn about the latest and most important challenges and developments in science, such as this week, an article on how tough it can be to get bivalent booster shots for COVID for young children. Another article on why breakthrough drugs are so expensive and what we can do about it. And a podcast of my interview with David Sinclair on his newly published research. Overall, the Leaps.org platform looks at innovations through the lens of rational optimism. You can find out what to be concerned about, but we also tell you which scientific breakthroughs are giving reason for excitement. Thanks for listening to the Friday Five, and have a great weekend.